Welcome to another Innovation Forum podcast. I'm joined this time by Felicitas Weber, who's Know the Chain Project Director at the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre. Welcome back to the podcast, Felicitas. Thanks for having me, and Great to be here. So the reason you're back on the podcast is that Know the Chain have just released their latest apparel benchmark findings. So why don't you tell us a little bit about or remind us what the Know the Chain benchmark is and what it aims to do? With the Know the Chain benchmarks, we focus on assessing companies' efforts to address forced labor risks across the different tiers of their supply chains. And we do that in high-risk sectors. So we are focusing predominantly on the electronic sector, on the food sector, and obviously on the apparel sector, which we're going to talk about today. And so we are publishing these benchmarks every two years, which allows us then to make a comparison over time. And we, at the moment, have 180 companies across those three sectors. So we're engaging with these companies on their efforts to address forced labor, but also engaging with a similar number of investors on you know, their efforts to address those risks in their portfolios. So what are the headline results from the latest report? Right. So with our latest benchmark report, we looked at the 37 largest companies in the sector. And one of the things that was really disappointing for us was that the average score was only 41 out of 100. So 100 is the largest possible points. And at this 41 mark, we would have liked to see companies at least say, like, get to the 50 mark on average, given that we're not even looking at living wages. We're really just looking at our companies addressing some of the worst forms of exploitation. We're also seeing a very widespread of scores, ranging anything from 89 out of 100 to 3 out of 100. And that's something that we're really seeing across regions and across the different subsectors, this very wide range of scores. So some companies doing a lot, some companies not doing very much. One thing that's been really notable this year is that we had a large number of forced labor allegations. So we look at forced labor allegations in the public domain and then see how companies respond to those. And over half of the companies had allegations regarding forced labor in their supply chain. Some companies had up to four allegations. And those included forced labor in Xinjiang, for example, also included you know, forced labor in other Asian countries, but also included forced labor in Africa and in, in Europe, for example. So from quite a variety of places. And in addition to that, of course, we know the broader context at the moment where there have been numerous reports of unpaid wages in the sector, unpaid benefits. And yet our benchmark found that only 11% of the companies could show us at least two remedy outcomes for workers, and that in a situation where we have so many allegations. So that was one of the main findings. I think another thing that really stood out was the massive policy practice gap. So we've seen companies disclosing a lot of policies and processes, but then it typically was not quite clear what emerges from these processes. Are they effective? company, for example, has a risk assessment process. It's then though unclear what risks have been identified. A company might have migrant worker policies, but it's really unclear what comes out for migrant workers out of these policies. Just thinking quickly about what the difference between 89 out of 100 and 3 out of 100 is. So can you just characterise what a company needs to be doing to get a score of 89 out of 100? So a company that has 89 of 100, that it would have shown that it undertakes efforts not only in one sourcing country, but really across sourcing countries and also across their different supply chain tiers, right? So a company that has three out of 100, well, has pretty much nothing in place, you know, maybe a commitment to address forced labor, but probably not even the policy levels. And a company that has 89 of 100 really shows us that they have policies and practices in place, but also shows us that these are effective, right? So that these lead to positive outcomes for workers and that these processes are in place, as I said, in different sourcing countries and across supply chain tiers. And this time you've highlighted worker-centric scores within the benchmark. So why have you done this and, and what do these show? 
The reason for that was that we've seen in, in this sector in particular how these top-down social auditing approaches have repeatedly failed to detect labor rights abuses, including forced labor. Clean Clothes Campaign, for example, had put out a report that detailed over 200 cases where you know audits failed to detect these cases. And we really feel that there is a need for more worker-centric due diligence that looks at root causes of forced labor, right? So that addresses structural inequalities between companies and workers that addresses the lack of worker power and also the lack of accountability when rights violations occur. So what we did for that reason is that we looked at those indicators that focused most strongly on worker participation. So for example, does a company have a formal agreement with a union or is a grievance mechanisms designed with workers? And also on those indicators that most strongly focused on outcomes for workers or so concrete outcomes such as have workers been reimbursed recruitment fees? Do migrant workers now have access to unions or grievance mechanisms or healthcare, for example? So that's what we did. And what we found is that the scores are sadly and probably unsurprisingly significantly lower. So we actually only had one company that scored above the 50% mark and actually nearly half of the companies that scored zero which for us really shows that there is a long way to go to address those root causes and to take workers who are really the experts on the topic as such and build more worker-centric due diligence. Let's think about some of the specifics then. Which brands are the leaders and which brands are the laggards and how has this changed since the last benchmark? So at the top, we have Lululemon and Adidas, so companies from North America and Europe in the sports and leisure wear. Um, they've both been at the top already last year, although they changed their positions, but really both further build out their leadership position compared to other companies. They're the only two that score above 75 out of 100, and they really show all the elements that I've highlighted before, right? So they show concrete outcomes for workers. They show that they're taking action in lower tiers. They show that they work on responsible recruitment, for example, across different countries. Now, if we look at the bottom, one thing that was noticeable that luxury companies scoring significantly lower than apparel retailers or footwear companies and we actually have seen some companies moving up, such as Hermes, for example, but others, Prada stands out in particular, that's really still at the bottom and that has remained at the bottom since 2016. Which brands have significantly improved then and what characterises the improvements have made? So one thing, first of all, maybe to say that actually all companies have improved at least a very tiny bit, which is really exciting, which is positive. And one of the things that was really positive to see this year that we've seen strong improvement from Asian companies. So for example, Pao Chen, which is a footwear manufacturer in Taiwan and supplier to companies like Adidas or Nike, they've improved by just actually looking at their supply chain at all, right? So adopting a very baseline sort of supplier code that prohibits forced labor, but then also really training their staff, training their suppliers, um, assessing their suppliers, supporting suppliers and setting up grievance mechanisms. And similar in Japan, we've also seen good progress from companies that really focused in on specifically ensuring that migrant workers have access to grievance mechanisms, looking how they can implement responsible recruitment mechanisms, but also being much more transparent about where they're sourcing from, including when it comes to lower tier suppliers. And maybe just to mention, I think some of the drivers here that we've seen is certainly some pressure from buyers, but then also always companies, you know, start to act once there are concrete allegations regarding those companies. And then I think also legislation and, you know, some of the action we've seen in the US, for example, is certainly helping to drive action. Just on that point, what are the key lessons to learn from those performing best for the others? So what are the key lessons for, for people that aren't doing well? What, can, what are the key lessons they can learn from the brands that are performing best? 
I think one of the things was really to start from the beginning with really thinking through how can you make your due diligence efforts more worker-centric and really talk to workers, <laughs> develop those processes with them, ensure they play a central part in that. And then also look at, are, are any policies and processes that you have, are they actually effective? Are they leading for the outcomes that you want for women workers, for migrant workers, right? And then once you've established that they are working, then ensure that they're implemented across systematically. So across sourcing countries and across supply chain tiers, um, and also be transparent about those efforts. You mentioned earlier that uh, the luxury sector is doing particularly badly. So can you just characterize in a bit more detail the performance of luxury brands versus mainstream brands? It certainly did stand out as a subsector, you know, compared to footwear companies, compared to apparel retailers that scored significantly lower. Um, I think what's still important to highlight that even within the luxury sector, we've seen quite a spread of scores, right? So someone like Burberry that scored higher within that sector has actually demonstrated that they're repaying fees to workers, monitoring their lower tier suppliers, looking at working conditions and cashmere sourcing. On the other hand, there's companies such as Prada that, that really haven't improved at all. One thing we also noticed that, you know, we looked also to what extent companies are sourcing materials that may be made with forced labor and actually luxury brands have or disclosing sourcing a higher number of such materials right so all of the companies we looked at all of them source cashmere source cotton source silk source viscose and wool some even rubber yet most of them say nothing as to where are these materials coming from in the first place and then how are they addressing potential risks one of the reasons certainly why we're seeing these lower scores is just that the pressure on those types of companies hasn't been there for the same amount of time than for other companies, but certainly also just an unwillingness to be transparent about both where they're sourcing from, but also about then actually taking efforts, which to some extent is still linked to the fact that a lot of them perceive some of their sourcing countries as lower risk. But um, unfortunately, we've seen also, say like in Italy, levels of abuse of migrant workers in the apparel sector and from the companies that are transparent we've actually seen that across their supply chain tiers they're sourcing from pretty much anywhere in the world so there is really no excuse for those companies not to step up. Yeah it's interesting isn't it that you'd expect that luxury and brands would be doing much more in this area but I think perhaps consumers are totally aware when they buy cheap clothing that there's potential risks there and perhaps they, they pursue mass market brands a bit more in this whereas they maybe they see that when they're spending a little bit more they expect everything to be dealt with so in some respects the luxury brands are running a significant reputational risk is that something you think might come into your next benchmark the fact that you know, maybe consumers will catch up with the fact that uh, the luxury brands where they're spending lots of money are not ones who are performing well on these human rights issues? Yeah, certainly I think there is increasing consumer awareness and I think that's certainly something we're seeing. Also, given a number of those are headquartered in Europe, there's increasing leaders, mandatory human rights, due diligence legislation. I think we've also just in our next benchmark, I think one of the things we're trying to do is really having strong clusters of companies from each of the subsectors from each of the regions and countries. So, you know, we'll probably also look at a greater sample of luxury companies. And I think the more comparison we have within that, the better we can also drive change and really compare them to their peers and show what good practice within their sector looks like. Because as I said, some of them actually are taking greater action. So I do hope that the rest of the sector really takes it to heart and is catching up. Anything else you expect to see next time? We very much hope to see much more worker-centric efforts and companies really taking to heart 
but they need to ultimately address those power imbalances both between buyers and suppliers and really look at their purchasing practices but then also between companies and workers and ensure that workers can exercise their right to freedom of association can access effective grievance mechanisms and really address those underlying drivers of forced labor that's something i hope to see <laughs> not sure we will but i i really very much hope so well, I guess it'd be interesting to see how the luxury sector responds into the next benchmark. And also, as you said, it's great to see that everybody seems to have improved a little bit. So perhaps continual improvement will be in evidence next time as well. But for now, Felicity Weber from the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre, thank you very much indeed. Thanks so much, Ian.